deadly sins, seven ways to win, seven holy paths to hell, and your trip begins. Seven downward slopes, seven bloodied hopes, seven are your burning fires, seven. Back in 1989, I was watching an episode of Headbangers Ball on MTV when a video came on from a little band called Iron Maiden. I'd heard of this band because of my friend Bill at school, but I had no idea what they sounded like. And then the video came on. I was definitely intrigued right away because of the music, the singing, and the melody. A little while later, my family had gone out for dinner one Saturday night, and then we hit the local record store. I don't know if anyone remembers Strawberries. I was looking for a tape to buy. I remember liking what I heard on that Ricky Rackman-hosted Headbangers Ball and searched through rows and rows of tapes until I found Iron Maiden. So I bought what was their most recent album up to that point, brought it home, put it in my stereo, turned it on, and this was the first song I heard. It was like nothing I'd ever heard. It was heavy, but not to the point where it could only be enjoyed by the heaviest of metal fans. The singer sang, the guitarist wailed, the bass and the drums galloped. I was instantly hooked. I didn't realize then that this was what was considered a concept album. A concept album is when an album has one central theme or story told from one song to the next. The idea for this album came from, who else? Steve Harris, after he read author Orson Scott Card's novel, Seventh Son, which had just come out in 1987. had been quoted saying, I'm not going to try to do an accent. It was our seventh album, and I didn't have a title for it or any ideas at all. Then I read the story of the seventh son, this mystical figure that was supposed to have all these paranormal gifts, like Second Sight and what have you. And it was more at first that it was just a good title for the seventh album, you know? But then I rang Bruce and started talking about it, and the idea just grew. For this 5-minute, 38-second opening track, written by guitarist Adrian Smith and singer Bruce Dickinson, the magazine Metal Hammer had reported that it was loosely based on the 1917 Aleister Crowley book of the same title. You know, Mr. Crowley! Boom, boom, boom. What is it with musicians and their interest in this dude? He's on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. Jimmy Page bought his house. Ozzy wrote a whole freaking song about him. Hell, even David Bowie references him in a 1971 song, Quicksand. Bruce Dickinson wrote a freaking movie where he has a character that's possessed. 
by Aleister Crowley or a professor. I don't know, something like that. As for that book, here's the plot in one sentence. Magical war between a group of white magicians led by Simon If and a group of black magicians over an unborn child. I'm assuming white magicians are good and bad. Black magicians use black magic and it's not some kind of crazy racial thing. I don't know. I don't see it. To me, when I hear the lyrics, it sounds like it's about an evil child. Maybe the devil's child being born. Maybe this is the first mention of that child, that seventh son of a seventh son. His grandparents must be exhausted. A big thing about this album is that there is heavy use of synthesizers, something Iron Maiden said they would never do until, of course, they started doing it on their previous album, Somewhere in Time. That you can maybe chalk up to, oh, it's the future and synths are the sound of the future. But two albums in a row? This time to open up their entire album? Nah, they just like the sound of it. And can you blame them? It sounds pretty badass. According to the liner notes, Adrian Smith played the synthesizer while Steve Harris played the string synthesizer. My guess is that the opening was played by Adrian Smith since he co-wrote the song. To me, Moonchild is about as perfect an opening track as Iron Maiden has ever had. It was also awesome to hear it live back in 2012 during the Maiden England tour. It sets the tone right away. There's a build right at the beginning that lifts off and takes you on this fast-paced journey. A journey that immediately slows down at the beginning of the next track. For years, I pronounced the title of this song. Because of the way Bruce says Infinite Dreams to open the track up, I always called it Infinite Dreams instead of just saying Infinite Dreams. I literally would say Infinite Dreams. I had the same problem when I first heard Bruce scream Flight of Icarus in Live After Death. I know it's pronounced Icarus, but for years I said Icarus because I'm kind of dumb. Low-paced intro. It builds into a more upbeat, higher-paced song towards the end. Second longest song on the album, clocking in at six minutes and eight seconds. Tomorrow, 
Now with this one, Metal Hammer Magazine said, it's about a spiritualist trying to unlock the meaning behind his tortured dream. Wow, what great insight. No shit. countless times, I'm saying hundreds of times, it can still give me chills. years ago, I was walking through Boston on my way to catch my train, and I was in the middle of Northeastern campus, and my favorite moment in the song comes on, and I'm telling you, chills. It's an indescribable feeling, a feeling that only music can give you, a feeling that only music that truly connects with you can give you. And this moment of this song does it for me every single day. It looks like I've never heard Infinite Dreams live, which is maddening. It's insane. I've heard friggin' Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter live, but not this. I hope that maybe this can someday be rectified. But if I'm reading this correctly, they're saying this song has not been played live since 1988, since the original Seventh Son tour. I was just a wee 10 years old? That can't be right. If that is right, you need to fix it, Maiden, and fix it now. Okay, so picture a 13-year-old little shit sitting in his bedroom with the Seven Sun cassette tape liner notes open. Those are a blast. Those cassette liner things where you fold them open, screw CD booklet. So I'm experiencing my first Iron Maiden record ever and listening to two songs I had never heard before. I like what I hear, but I'm honestly thinking to myself, what was that song I heard on Headbangers Ball? And then it starts. Can I play with madness? <laughs> These five simple words ask me a question that's ever changed my life. 
That's not even an exaggeration. It was this song that made me buy this tape. It was this tape that made me start to love the band. It was this tape that led me back to school to beg my friend Bill for more. Give me more Maiden, Bill. Give me more Maiden. He started lending me tapes like their debut album, Number of the Beast, Power Slave, Peace of Mind. Hell, he might have given me all their tapes at some point. Then in October of that year, the 23rd, a young chubby Mikey was playing street hockey when he fell in the street and destroyed his elbow. Me, I- I'm the chubby Mikey. It was a Sunday, I think, and that Monday I went in and had a three-hour operation on my elbow. I had screws and plates put in, and uh, they were taken out a few months later. But the main thing about having surgery and being in the hospital is that you get awesome gifts, including a bunch of Iron Maiden tape. I got Live After Death from my parents, and my awesome grandmother, rest in peace, Nana, she went to the record store and bought me my own Number of the Beast tape. She loved telling the story where the record clerk guy was like, is this for you? She always enjoyed that. By then it was too late. I was hooked forever. Seeing them nine times so far, seeing them for a 10th time this summer, countless shirts and posters, doing stuff like this, talking to awesome fans like you guys. All because of this simple question. the shortest song on the record by at least a minute. Written by Steve, Bruce, and Adrian, Madness reached number three on the UK charts and was the 16th Iron Maiden single and the first one released for this album. And you can understand why. It's very radio and video friendly with its length and it is catchy as all fuck. What is so cool about this is that the idea for this song was originally a ballad called On the Wings of Eagles, written by Adrian Smith. Bruce and Steve heard that and decided to turn it into something more heavy. But hot damn, I would love to hear the original demo for that song. Now, Wikipedia, the world's most trusted information source, right? They say that this song is about a young man who wants to learn the future from an old prophet with a crystal ball. Again, I mean, this is like common sense if you just read the lyrics. To me, it sounds like this child, this moon child, starting having some crazy dreams, maybe you could say even some infinite dreams and now he seeks out an old prophet to ask him once and for all can I play with madness you're young enough that all you know were CDs and now streaming, then you have no idea how albums were structured back in the olden days. Back when you either had to turn over your record or turn over your cassette. There were sides, distinct sides to albums, which I think had a lot to do with how albums used to be constructed. 
He wanted a killer track to close out one side so that peeps would flip over the tape or the record and keep listening. And these British bitches were so good at doing that, so good at structuring their albums with sides. An album could be seen as if it's a two-act structure. The evil that men do would be considered the end of act one. This song, again written by Adrian, Bruce, and Steve, was the second single released from the album, and it reached number six on the UK chart. The title of the song is taken from Marcus Antonius's speech while addressing the crowd of Romans at Caesar's murder. Act 3, Scene 2, The Forum. In William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, the evil that men do lives after them, the good oft interred with their bones. The good that men do is oft interred with their bones. But the evil hey, that men this song do. references Bill Shakespeare. Well, the title does. The song itself really doesn't have anything to do with it. To be honest, I have no idea what the song is about. I guess it's about men and the evil they do. Seems like there's some sacrificing going on, maybe. There's a chicken there, the lady human kind, and a lamb, the sheep kind. And, well, there is another one of those moments that does... Give me the chill. that men do just perfectly gets you pumped as this first side of the album comes to a close. This first act in the olden days. important to choose a song that closes out your first side well but it's also very important to find a song to kick off that second side take number of the beast for example it's number now a lot of people hear that title track and might think oh man what a great way to kick off a record and it definitely would be but it wasn't number of the beast is the fifth track off that album 
it kicks off side two of your record or your take. With Seven Son of a Seven Son, they do the exact same thing. Kick off side two with the title track. This nearly 10-minute track. The longest song on this album. Yes, I'm talking about, of course, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. Picture that 13-year-old stud again in his bedroom with the liner notes out, lost in the amazing Derek Riggs artwork. This was his first time experiencing a band that had a mascot, a weird devil-looking thing that I guess is pregnant? Wait, does this mean Eddie is a seventh son and he already had six other sons? Anyway, this cool eighth grader flips over his tape, and how effing long is this song? Keep in mind, before this, it was Guns N' Roses, Kiss, Hair Bands, and Ozzy. Just about all their songs were radio and single length and very friendly for videos and radio. Ten minutes... From the opening riff, steady, gloomy, and then the drums kick in, give it a more of a punch, a groove. tell that this song is going to be a classic Iron Maiden epic. And of course, it is penned by the maestro of Maiden, Steve Harris. Once I realized that this was a concept album, and believe me, it's not something I knew as a handsome junior high student, I always thought of this song as the explanation of what the hell was going on. The child, the dreams, the questions, all because this man is the seventh son of a seventh son. Will he be good? Will he be evil? What I love about this song is that it's 10 minutes long, and yet, lyrically, it's fairly simple. Two verses, a chorus, another verse, another chorus, then Bruce does some creepy talking. That's it. I knew this song before I knew Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. I always feel like these two songs are like sister songs. One always makes me think of the other, especially when things slow down. A 
with Iron Maiden, they just don't care. They never have. They never will. They will never write a song because of a record company pressure or record sale pressure. True Maiden fans listen to them because they are Iron Maiden, because they do songs like this. Oh, hey, you like that three and a half minute song with the catchy chorus? Cool, cool, cool. Here's a 10 minute song with probably the same amount of lyrics. Sing along to that rock radio, we dare ya. And if you think that's crazy, flash forward 27 years and we'll give you an 18 minute song about a friggin' airship disaster. We're Iron Maiden, and we only know one thing, and that's being Iron Maiden. Boys and girls, now we come to the part of the episode where I talk about what I may consider one of the most underrated Iron Maiden songs ever. This one is a personal favorite of mine, dating back to when I first heard it back in 1989. This is a song that Iron Maiden has never ever played live. The Prophecy. Co-written by Steve Harris and Dave Murray, the only two chaps to be on every Iron Maiden album, this is Dave's only writing credit on the album. To me, this song answers the age-old question, can I play with madness? And I think the answer is no. You can predict it, you can warn people, but can you change the outcome? 
Can you manipulate the future? No, you can't. No one will believe you even though you are the real seventh son. They may actually blame you for cursing them, when in truth, you were only trying to warn them. The lyrics and theme of this is depressing, and yet the music that accompanies it, I've always felt was upbeat and positive, and the chorus is amazing. That was the point, to juxtapose this great, powerful feeling with the reality that it's not that great after all. Am I reading too much into this? Maybe. But this is an Iron Maiden podcast. Isn't that the point? This guy has all the power, and yet, what good is it? What good is it to be clairvoyant? Imagine having all this power, and it only brings you sadness. Imagine having so much power that it starts to crack your reality. Are you seeing the future? Are you living in the now? What is happening? The power is getting stronger and stronger, and he fears he can't control it. Clocking in at 4 minutes and 26 seconds, this is the second shortest song on the album. It was written by Mr. Steve Harris, bass guitarist. I love, love, love the beginning of this song. I love the whole thing, but the beginning is just so damn catchy, and it's not just because I actually can play it on the guitar. Here we are with another song that has some catchy riffs and moments, but in actuality, it's a bit of a downer. Genius.com says... 
According to Steve Harris, the song and these lines were inspired by the death of the psychic Doris Stokes a year earlier, wondering if she could foresee her own death. What good is this power? What good is being able to see the future if that one thing you can't see is your own demise, your own death? You are the clairvoyant, but it turns out that is more of a curse than you had ever imagined. This power, it is destroying you. It's killing you. You're trying to do the right thing, but at what personal cost? If you just gave up trying to do the right thing, you might survive. You might live on. But if you continue to try to be good, to make the hard decisions and do what is right, well, you know what they say about the good. Here we are, the last track on the album. A terrific closing track, and yet it might be my least favorite song on the record. I mean, there are only eight songs, and I love them all. There has to be a favorite, and there has to be a least favorite. I'm not saying I dislike this song. In fact, as I listen to it now, I'm grooving to it. But if I were to listen to random tracks from this album, this and Seven Son are probably the ones I would go to the least. That's just a fact. Damn, this song still rocks. Clocking in at 4 minutes and 40 seconds, this Harris-Dickinson collaboration is, according again to Genius.com, about the seventh son, and if he chooses the righteous path, the harder road, or if he chooses to live on taking the easy way out, the sinful way. Iron Maiden doesn't write romantic songs. They don't write songs that have many happy endings. They may tell tales of history, tales of violence or morality, but very rarely will it be like, oh, this guy did the right thing and everything's going to be better. No. Our chosen one, our moon child, our clairvoyant, the one who wants to play with madness, the one that made prophecies that no one listened to, the seventh son, he basically tells humanity, suck it. So I think I'll leave you with the bishop's 
So I think I'll leave you with your bishops and your guilt. So until your next time, have a good sin. You can have your religion. You can have your humanity. You can continue to sin. You can continue to suffer. I'm out of here. podcast has given me a new appreciation for Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. As a kid, I had no idea that it was a concept album. As an adult, I knew it because I read it somewhere, but I never really put the story together. Now going through each of the songs, it really does tell an epic tale, an honest-to-goodness story told in eight parts. Eight parts that give Iron Maiden their first number one in the UK since Number of the Beast. It gives them a number 12 album in the United States where hair bands and hip-hop ruled the airwaves. An album that saw Adrian Smith leave the band shortly after, only to return 19 years later. An epic eight-part tale that forever changed my life. Seven deadly sins, seven ways to win, seven holy paths to hell. <laughs> seven downward slopes, Seven bloodied hopes, seven are your burning fires, seven your desire. The Maiden Fan Podcast is hosted through Anchor.fm. Check out Anchor.fm slash Maiden to subscribe to your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Twitter at Maiden Podcast. And folks, new for 2019, we are now on Facebook with our own Facebook page, which you can find at facebook.com slash maidenpodcast. The official website is fansnotexperts.com slash maiden. And you can reach out to us through email. The email address is maiden at fansnotexperts.com. Or yes, now you can call and leave us a voicemail. You can call us at 916 562 Three two seven eight, or maybe you can remember it better with because the number is nine one six five six beast. And I want to give a shout out to a fellow New Englander and a fellow Maiden fan, Brian Murphy. That's a very Massachusetts sounding name, if I say so myself. I wouldn't be surprised if he grew up being called Murph, or someone in his family had that nickname. I'm almost positive someone in his family was to be called Murph. What's up, Murph? Uh, listen, Murph. Can I call you Murph? Thank you for the email for reaching out. Turns out we've been uh, to all, if not almost all, of the same shows. We've lived in the same town, uh, and we both are seeing Iron Maiden this summer in Mansfield, so hopefully we can meet up. Folks, it's people like you that make this exciting. Uh, this is a new beginning for the podcast. I, I hope you stay with it. I plan on staying with it. I'm excited to do this. Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks for listening, and until next time, up the irons. Like men will die
Fabs not experts.